As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Once again, guys, upon your request, you've asked me to kind of do an episode. Um, I got quite several few messages saying, oh, what's happening in Afghanistan? Which news sources should we trust? Who should we be talking to? I've tried to source people because I realized more and more as the platform increases, I've had several messages of angry people telling me, oh, that was incorrect what this person said. So now I've tried my best to kind of source people who I think have good takes and I think who should be platformed and listened to. And today we have Professor Justin Podor. So thank you so much for joining me on The Malcolm Effect. Thank you. <laughs> so let's go straight into it. I read your thread and we hear a lot about, oh, the US wasted the last 20 years. And then, you know, then we spoke about this week, this can, this can be dated back to really the 1800s. Absolutely. Absolutely. The 1800s. And I mean, in some ways even earlier, but for your listeners in the United Kingdom. Yes. I mean, you could, the reason I said it could go even earlier is because the British East India Company arrived in India in the 1600s, at the end of the 1600s. Mm-hmm. No, actually, in the 1600s, I don't think it was the end. They were there for quite a while before they started to make. So they started to make progress when, you know, the last or sort of strong Mughal emperor died, Aurangzeb, in 1707. Mm -hmm. So from 1707 to 1757, they started to make all kinds of inroads into India as it was kind of falling apart from uh, from where it was. So they took advantage of the fact that there are these processes that states have, right, cyclical, where they they collapse and, and they kind of reform and rebuild. And, and when, in this case, when India was going through this collapse, the British Empire was there to pick up all the pieces and eat them, <laughs> swallow them. Mm-hmm. So by mm-hmm. 1757, they had won the, the right to collect revenue which basically okay. means they had become the power, right? The state power. Yeah. So they they won, they they extracted this after a big battle called the Battle of Panipat in, in 1757. No, the Battle of Plassey. Sorry, sorry. Panipat mm-hmm. was a different battle. Plassey it was called. And, you know, Clive, there's this famous kind of profiteering company agent named Robert Clive, who's got an interesting story. But in any case, so from 1757 on, the British were trying to protect, uh, to expand their empire in South Asia and to Mm -hmm. eliminate all of those potential rivals in Asia. So they had rivals from the so-called Maratha Empire, the uh, the Sikh Empire, and of course, the the Persian Empire and and the Afghan Empire. You know, and they were all sort of called empires, although, you know, you can it's, they were not empires in the same way that the British Empire was an empire. Yes. But so th- this was their concern. And by the time of, by the mid, um, yeah, by the mid 1800s, mm-hmm. they had control of much of South Asia. And they their main rivals at that time were the Sikh Empire and the Afghans. And so, you know, their whole typical idea of supporting or hitting them against one another and picking them off one at a time. So they picked off the Afghans first, and then they went for the Sikhs. So the Afghans' turn came in 1839, and what they did was they went to try to impose 
a king of their choice, the candidate of their choice, which was this Shah Shuja. And they invaded with mostly Indian troops from British India, which is yes. the, you know today Pakistan, actually. But they invaded and they committed a whole bunch of horrific atrocities, you know, rapes, massacres. But eventually, they they occupied Kabul for a while. So and, they were they yeah. were quintessentially British. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. your your listeners know the Malcolm effect. You you guys know the story. <laughs> and then, but they they lost control. So they lost control of Kabul. They were driven out of Kabul. Mm-hmm. And you know, so in imperial history and and the way they wrote about it and talked about it at the time, they remember this as a great crime against them. Right. So all of the pe- all of the things that happened to their army. You know the fear that they felt ha- fleeing the battlefield. You know the the fact that their servants had to rescue them, and some their Indian servants had to rescue them. Sometimes lost their lives trying to rescue them from these the Afghans that were resisting mm-hmm. their invasion and occupation. The you know the the treasure that they had stolen that was then stolen back from them. <laughs> All these things that they lost. These are the things that they remember. There was a mountain pass, you know, that they had to go through and the Afghans controlled the passes and were shooting them from higher ground. And they, they remember all this with a whole lot, with a lot of trauma. And there's a painting when they, for the second round, when they attacked Afghanistan yeah. again in the 1870s, there's this famous painting of this doctor, you know, who was like the one man who survived, which wasn't true. There were lots of them surviving, <laughs> but they make this painting out of this one man who straggles in on a horse, you know, and that they always show that painting of this one last guy who who, who survived so, this long march. Yeah. Well, yeah well, I, what I'm essentially hearing is once again, meddling British cannot keep their cannot keep themselves to themselves, and then mm-hmm. it goes far as back into the 1800s that there's always this kind of look onto the history as what you know us being the victors or what yeah. we've lost and us always being great, as is always the colonial mentality. So essentially, what you're saying, not much has changed. Yeah, but like specifically the way that they spun it, right? Like yes. the way that the empire spins these, whether it's a victory or a defeat, they're yes. always setting up for the next. So, mm. so in 1842, they they talked a lot about the horrible things that were done to them by the Afghans. They glossed yeah. over all the much worse, horrible things that they did to Afghans, and that was all in order to organize and rationalize what they called the Army of Revenge. So, the Army of Revenge was in 1842, mm-hmm. where they said we have to we we can't occupy Afghanistan, but we can avenge what they did to us. Which now that I say that, it sounds a lot like a Marvel movie, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. There's a part where Tony Stark says we can't, we may not be able to save the earth, but we'll event. It's interesting. Anyway, Army of Revenge. So the Empire will always try to manufacture consent, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And they use these images whether whether we recognize them or not. So they so they do this army of revenge. They do simple destruction. They're just trying to destroy cities. They're trying to destroy agricultural fields. They're trying to destroy trees. They talk proudly about how they people live off the mulberry tree. They grind the fruit to make the flower. You know, they take shelter underneath them. The mulberry tree is a big part of life there, and they destroy the trees. They just cut a ring around the tree so the tree dies. Oh, so wow. they're and they and uh, when they finished with this horrific army of revenge people parliamentarians in britain say things like well it'll take centuries for them to recover if at all so you know who knows whether they were right but that's certainly what they were trying to do right wow 
So, and the next point is they, they're also setting up for the next two wars, which they do in 1878-9 and 1919-19. So they're always setting up for the next attack, the next incursion, the next intervention, which I think is a pattern that we're also it's seeing. Because today. they got their asses beat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, right? Like, they, yes, for sure. They, they, you know, they militarily, you know, a lot of imperialism is mystique, right? A lot of mm-hmm. it is, it's not necessarily that one imperial, you know, South Africa relied a lot on this, like whether they're, they're not one man, a man is a man and a man with a gun is a man yeah. with a gun, right? Like, yeah. or a woman <laughs> with a gun, as, yeah. as we've seen. In fact, there were lots of Afghan women in this war that fought against the British. There was a cavalry woman, mm, a famous woman, wow. charged, you know, led cavalry charges against them. So a person, a human being with a, with a weapon is a human being with a weapon. There's no, like, special thing. You know, obviously, yeah. imperialists have more money. They have better equipment for the most part. But they rely a lot on this mystique that there's something unbeatable about them. There's something better mm. about them, right? And the British relied a lot on that. They relied a lot on that kind of like racism and also psyching their their Asian enemies out in particular, mm-hmm. probably in the Americas too. So once that mystique is lost, they become very concerned, right? So yes. that was another thing they said about the Afghan war in 1842. Because remember, India is their big prize. And India is where they're getting a huge amount, you know, all their manpower for all these operations, yes. all their tremendous amounts of money. They're building the world economy basically by start driving the world's largest economy into a famine kind of state, yeah. right? So they're doing that. And they fear that if we lose, if we're seen to lose a war, if we're seen to lose a war to Asians in Afghanistan, that means our the Indian troops wow, that we yeah. rely on, they, they say this quite explicitly, the Indian troops that we rely on will not believe in our mystique and then we won't be able to hold India because, you know, India's mm-hmm. hundreds of millions of people. There are never more than hun- hundreds of thousands of British there. Yep. So they rely heavily on that mystique and that was what yeah. they were afraid of. And this They're is kind the of worried yeah. about the unseating of the ideological underpinnings that justify their exactly, their mm. exactly, and well, that's what okay, they're also that's what they're also afraid of in this case, right? That's why they're mm-hmm. they're setting. You can see them setting this up now. Like you can see the concerned questions. Like what is what's going to happen to Taiwan? What's going to happen to Israel? What yes. what does it mean? Like our credibility? Like if we're occupying or you know trying to <laughs> trying to support these different occupations? Like how can our how can our local proxies or allies depend on us? Um, mm, so how can we justify our presence in these places? Yeah. So. Now, when 2021, we're to- we're reeling back from we all what we all many people knew to be a disastrous decision, but what's the situation on the ground right now? What are who are who and are the key players? What is happening basically? What has led up to this yeah. specific juncture? Yeah. So this specific juncture, again, we can say I need about 30 years. So if okay. we go back to not, maybe 40. So if we go back to the 70s, which is when the modern kind of US-based intervention in Afghanistan started, like sometime in the early 70s, there was a democratic opening, and the US started to try to get involved to manipulate politicians to make sure that the left-wing nationalist forces in Afghanistan did not 
come to power. So that was their main concern. And, you know, Pakistan had different concerns. China had different concerns. Saudi Arabia, there were all kinds of... The, the US was building kind of a coalition to intervene okay. there. So okay. what they did was they tried to sponsor certain politicians, but things they kind of lost control of it. There was a coup against... The people they were sponsoring in 1973 by Daoud. Okay. And then Daoud Khan was himself overthrown by the left, you could say, okay. in 1978. By left, the communists? Yeah, they call them communists, but Afga- the Afghan name is Parcham and the Afghan, you know, the direct translation is the People's Democratic Party. So okay. I just, I hesitate to say communist because, you know, the reason they call them, they like, they, they translate, you know, I don't think anybody would reject the label, but. I don't, they didn't use the label. Let's oh, put it okay. that way. Same with the Mao. There was a Maoist party. People call them the Maoist. But in fact, the Afghan name is, you know, in Persian is Sholai Jawed. So it's, okay. then they called them Sholawi. So it's like, there's, there's just different names. And I just like to use those names. You know what I mean? Okay. So, you know, the PDPA comes to power the in a coup in 778. And they do a land reform. Okay. And the land reform is unpopular with landowners. Yeah. Of course. Who are the landowners? The landowners of Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is a very much a peasant country at this time, right? Like there's a city. You've seen the images from Kabul from the 70s, the girls wearing skirts and all all that stuff. So that was all. I see that image one more time. I need to mute it on social media. (laughs) And by these liberals, look what Afghanistan was like before. (laughs) Yeah, under the communists. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That you hate. But yeah, so they... So the U.S., you know, the same as like in Cuba, right? They did a land reform. The Cubans went to Miami and they started to organize for the Bay of Pigs and they started to organize to try to get rid of those uh, communists in Cuba. It's the same story. It's a very similar story. So just like Miami became the repository of all these people who lost the revolution, in a lot You're of a very them. nice person. I have a different word. I have a different word for them, but I won't say it. <laughs> a, lot of these, a lot of these people, this their equivalents in Afghanistan, they went to Pakistan. So they're in okay. Peshawar, oh, they're in okay. Keta, And they set up there, and that's where the US and the CIA and they mount, you know, the largest covert war in history, I think, to that time. So, wow. you know, they're taught, you, you know, they, they make an alliance with the Pakistani dictator at the time, Ziyal Haq, who was, mm-hmm. who had just gotten into power. They had just overthrown Democratic, the elected politician in, in Pakistan, Bhutto. Okay. Yeah. So they just, so, so the Ali power. Yeah. So the land reform. So just, just to kind of yeah, keep my okay, people up the street. Sure, <laughs> sure. That's okay. Sorry to cut you off. No, no problem. So the communists are in power. Mm-hmm. They attempt a land reform, or they're doing a land reform, as is yeah. the case of most Marxist-leaning governments. Yeah. So this upsets the previous landowners. Yeah. They escape and they join and they establish and set up base in Pakistan. Yes. Then they mount an, a revenge or an attack or to take back, and this is backed by who? This is backed by the U.S., it's back yep. by Pakistan. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I hate to say it, but because of the Sino-Soviet split, it's also backed by China. Okay. No. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, unholy alliances were made. Oh, 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 so this, this is the beginning of non-alignment. Well, yeah. No, I mean, non-alignment. No, okay. And then the Saudi, you know, the Saudi Wahhabis are also. So yeah. what happens is they all sponsor different mujahideen so everybody kind of has like some dedicated mujahideen to them and they're you know so there's like one that's really close to the saudis his name is uh rasul salaf and then there's like there's like masood and rabbani who are 
probably closest to the Americans. And then there's uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar and Haqqani, and they're probably closest to the Pakistanis. And so, but there's also regional people. So there's like a communist, you know, under the communists, there's like a local army commander who switches sides at the last minute okay. and becomes a warlord, Rashid Dostum, who just fled like recently in the face of the Taliban. And then there's oh, another yeah. one in Herat, uh, Ismail Khan. So he, so there's warlords with regional bases and there's mujahids with like external sponsors. And okay. so they put this coalition together and they keep them together with a constant flow of arms, constant flow of cash. And they have this open, completely open border with Pakistan. So this is a pretty, it becomes, it pretty quickly becomes a formidable threat for the government, right? Okay. For the, yeah. So the government is just pretty overwhelmed with the amount of heavy duty resistance coming their yes. way. So they call the, they call the Soviet Union for assistance. So they call them and the Soviet Union, after a a debate, they decide, you know, having the Americans and their, you know, this, this American sponsored government be in power in Kabul would not be good for them. So they end up supporting the government. So this is what's in 17. Now we're in 1979. So the revolution starts in 78. By 79, the Soviet Union has arrived to support the government. By what year? Sorry, 79? 79, yeah. The the revolution was like a a year and a half, basically, before the Soviet Union came in. Okay. So the Soviet Union comes in, and now we're in like the Soviet Union or the Soviet-backed government versus the U.S.-backed Mujahideen, right? Okay. And this goes on for 10 years and for and you can imagine the destruction that happens in 10 years right and then 10 years later the soviet union collapses and the soviet troops leave so you think okay well this is just a puppet regime of the soviet union right so it's bound yeah. to fall within within weeks like what happened with the U- just now in 2021 in fact they held Does on anyone for- claim victory yeah well in fact for 3 more years the so-called revolutionary government of Afghanistan held on yeah. and they held on because a lot of people supported them continued to okay. support them because they supported a nationalist program they supported the various reforms they were proposing yeah and they were quite afraid of the mujahideen because the mujahideen were a pretty much un unrestricted destructive force all they did was destroy everything right that's like the u.s blueprint for insurgency is just destroy the state destroy the symbols of the state destroy the state's ability to do anything right destroy the legitimacy of the state so they were bombing health clinics schools you name it right that's what the mujahideen were doing so they're a purely destructive force but which is part of why the government is able to hold on for for three more years but you know, Kabul, if you look at a map of Afghanistan, Kabul, it's it's landlocked, right? Yeah. So, and it, it that like I said, that border with Pakistan is totally exposed. But you know, there's a there's a border with the Central Asian republics, you know, Tajikistan, yeah. Uzbekistan. So that was how Russia, you know, was getting aid to Kabul. And so Yeltsin, who was who became the leader of this the Russian Federation after the Soviet mm-hmm. fall of the Soviet Union, Yeltsin was basically dedicated to giving America whatever America wanted. Oh, right. Okay. What so, year are we talking about now? Oh, uh, we're now in 1992. Okay. I mean, Yeltsin, I think, takes over 91. Okay. But, yeah, and Yeltsin basically has a coup and everything, right? Like he overthrows the 
Like there were people who wanted a slower reform and they didn't want to yes. do shock, neoliberal shock therapy and Yeltsin yes. overruled all of them, right? So domestically, Yeltsin destroyed Russia, but internationally, Yeltsin also destroyed Russia's, all of all Russia's allies. Wow. So Yeltsin did this deal with America to just stop supporting the Afghan government. Yes. That's so, you know, they, they could have fought on, but they literally didn't have any bullets. You know, they didn't have any, yes. like, they didn't have anything, right? So once Yeltsin makes that deal, the government in Afghanistan falls. So now the Mujahideen, all of yeah, these different, I'm oh, sorry. sorry. Why is it like portrayed then? I mean, again, my history on this is not, not as expensive, extensive as yours. Why is it portrayed then that the Soviet went in and just massacred Afghanis? Because that's because it's the Soviet Union because of anti because anti-communism is a fundamental rule of all media discussion of everything right oh, wow. so so in terms of like the US you know US media they they project all the things that say the British did to Afghanistan they project all of that onto the Soviet Union right they wanted to portray it as you know um, the Soviet Union's Vietnam so like all oh. the atrocities that the Americans were committing in Vietnam, therefore the Soviets were committing automatically in Afghanistan. No, like it was, they were running a counterinsurgency, right? Like there, there were, it was a war. There were terrible things that happened. Like I'm not like complete apologist for the Soviet Union, but yeah. I don't, I don't accept the parallel with what the British or the Americans uh, were doing. Like I, I don't automatically accept it. And I think there's a pretty, like, there's a lot of evidence that's not how it went, including, you know, when I went to Afghanistan, I used to ask people and people were like, yeah, you know, it was, you know, we didn't like having the Russians here, but, you know, for the most part, they weren't Russians. They were Tajiks or <laughs> Turkmen. They were from those Central Asian republics, right? Yeah. And they also, they were like, you know, they never behaved like the Americans do. He would say like, they never see it. You never would see an American outside of his armored vehicle, right? Yeah. They would just zip through town at maximum speed, running people over or whatever. He was saying, like, if you saw, you would see, like, a Soviet soldier and he would be hanging out and people would approach him and he'd be like, hey, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but it's like a totally different, you know, it's just a different thing. What they were, so, again, like, they were foreign troops. They were unpopular yeah. with a lot of Afghans for, you know, patriotic reasons. They were fighting an insurgency and there's no, there's never good things that happen when you're a counterinsurgent, you know, state or force. There were atrocities that were committed by the, by the communist government and by their Russian supporters, like for sure. But again, it's totally different. It's a different period than, than what you saw from 92 to today. Okay. Okay. So Mujahideen. So the, now the Mujahideen have their chance. It's 1992. Yeltsin has betrayed the Afghan government. The Afghan government falls. So now, for the most part, the Mujahideen go to their base areas. So the the Rashid Dostum goes to Mazar e Sharif, and Ismail Khan goes to Herat. But there's a question of who gets to control Kabul. So Gulbuddin Hikmatyar, who's like one of the famous warlords, comes into conflict with Murnafuddin Rabbani and Ahmed Shah Massoud. So they're a little team. Ahmed Shah Massoud is a Tajik. He controls the Panjshir Valley, and Rabbani is one of the kind of coordinating leader Mujahideen leaders. Both of these guys are dead. Hikmatyar is still alive, by the way. But Rabbani and Hikmatyar can't agree 
on who should rule Kabul. So they kick Hikmatyar out of Kabul and Hikmatyar attacks Kabul. So they basically, Kabul had pretty much survived the entire 10-year war from 79 to 92, well, 12 years. But from 92 to 96, these this war between these warlords over Kabul, over the spoils of their victory, they just completely, they pretty much destroyed Kabul. They destroyed whatever of Afghanistan had not been destroyed. Because again, that was their project, right? Like, yeah. The different nationalists always are trying to build something and develop something, but these imperialist forces are always there to destroy. That's yes. what they do. And the interest of the British Empire in Afghanistan was that it not become a strong power, a strong state that could threaten their interests, and that's also been the interest of the U.S. as well. So they just and the interest being the U.S. interest. Yes, is bases. So I'll get to that when I when I get okay, into please, you. you know a little bit later. But the in- it's it's very similar. It's basically like about controlling the region, and uh, yeah, this is why the current moment is actually very interesting for some of these reasons. But let let me get there. So yeah. we're in '96. They've redestroyed Kabul, but there the Pakistanis got a little bit tired of the complete destruction on their border. So they decided, oh, and, and I mean, they deci- they they have sponsored, they have their hands in this, right? They're, yeah. They've been in this since the 70s, right there with the Americans. But they have good connections in Afghanistan now. They have lots of ref- Afghan refugees in their on their borders. And they're into the kind of Islamist ideology, and they like the idea of Afghanistan being run by such people. They're not in, they're not interested in Afghan nationalists because Afghan nationalists have very make various claims on the Pashtun <laughs> part of Pakistan because okay. there's Pashtuns in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Afghanistan, you know, claims doesn't recognize that anyway, didn't at the time necessarily recognize that that Pashtun part of Pakistan should be part of Pakistan and not Afghanistan. Anyway, there's a dispute over that, right? It's yeah. it's pretty much dead now. But the point is, the Pakistanis wanted Islamists in power, and they were kind of getting sick of Hikmatyar and and some of the other proxies that they had. So they or they helped organize another a new force called the Taliban, and that's around sometime between ninety two and ninety four. And it's like these, it's young, they're youth. They've they've been raised in nothing but civil war, right? Like this yeah. war has been their whole world. They've never known anything of the nationalist Afghanistan. They know nothing about the so-called communists. They know nothing about Daoud. They know nothing about any of that side. They've grown up entirely in this Mujahideen milieu in Pakistan. You know, boys, teenagers when the war starts, now they're in their 20s and they're organized. They, you know, Pakistan sets them up with, you know, some weapons and vehicles and boom, they do this blitz across Afghanistan starting really in 94. They take Kandahar and they take much of Afghanistan, most of it by 96. So they take Kabul in 96 from these warlords. Rabbani and Masood flee. Masood flees to the Panjshir Valley. So parts of the north are still controlled by the so-called Northern Alliance, uh, these different warlords, these, these Mujahideen from before. But Kandahar, Kabul, and the rest of the country is controlled from 96 on by the Taliban. Mm -hmm. So the Taliban, because, so the warlords were all about destruction. They were also about rape. They were also about personal enrichment. So the Taliban's claim to Afghanistan, the reason people support them, is because they're absolutely brutal law and order 
fanatics. So they do not like if you rape, they kill you like they like if they hear about so and they run their courts and people complain and they do justice. Their whole thing is like Islamic justice. Right. So that's in the context of 1992 to 96 Afghanistan. People gravitate towards that because it's been a complete collapse. People are, you know, some some warlord will come and like take your children from you. Right. Yeah. And so the Taliban come and say, like, someone took your children. Okay, we'll have a quick trial. We'll string that person up. We'll give you your children back. We move on. So that becomes like the floor, you know, like the basic minimum of what, you know, people can hope for. So for that reason, as draconian and backwards and, you know, cruel as they were, that kind of consistent justice position was what won them the support that they did have. Mm. They also banned pop opium production, which was a big CIA project, right? Starting from the 70s on. And so that was where they were at in 2001. So they they allowed bin Laden to come into the country sometime in the 90s that, you know, the U.S. was upset with them about that. But after 9-11, the U.S., you know, decided they were going to invade Afghanistan. So the Taliban were like, give us evidence, we'll hand them over. And they were like, no, we don't negotiate, we're invading. They had the plan to invade anyway. Oh, yeah. So so they invaded and they occupied the country for 20 years. So here's the thing. When you said, what's the interest, right? Yeah. From the 70s till 2021, the US has had a base in either Afghanistan or Pakistan. And as the situation has shifted in that region where, you know, Russia under Putin slowly stopped doing whatever the Americans wanted and China has slowly moved towards not necessarily doing whatever the Americans want. And Pakistan, you know, 2011 on, they invaded their own Pashtun areas and committed all kinds of horrific atrocities against Pakistanis from that part, you know, the against the so-called Pakistan Taliban. And they were, you know, they were allowing the American drone strikes. They were doing their own aerial attacks. It made them really unpopular in their own country. And they were sick of doing it. So they, after the Americans did some spectacular drone strike that killed a whole bunch of innocent people, yeah, the Pakistanis told them, we don't want to host your bases anymore. Mm. So the Americans said, that's cool. We'll still be bombing you from Afghanistan, though. So Afghanistan became the base for bombing operations in Pakistan. And Pakistan has moved closer and closer to China. And so now, after you know, just this month, all of those drone bases from which the U.S. was droning Afghanistan's rural areas and Pakistan are closed for business. Yeah. So this is a you know, this is a big deal. This is yep. this is the first time in 40 years that the US hasn't had an easy aerial drone base. You know, they'll have to go from Qatar or something. Like they have to wow. they'll have to travel from afar from far now to to bomb Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is, you know, before you could say, well, poor Afghanistan, because all of its neighbors, you know, are kind of hostile, right? Like Pakistan is always interfering. Russia, you know, 
people didn't like that Russians invaded in 79 Iran, you know, Iran also sponsors sponsored its own warlords in Afghanistan. So there was a lot of like a feeling of, you know, being surrounded because Afghanistan's landlocked. But now it's a little bit the the situation is almost the opposite because all of Afghanistan's neighbors now are under some kind of sanction by the US. Like Iran is mm. sanctioned, Russia's sanctioned, China's sanctioned, Pakistan is under various kinds of terrorist financing sanctions. Yes. So so it's just like it's going to be hard now for the you, the US is obviously going to try to isolate the Taliban and they've stolen their money, right? They've stolen the government reserves yeah. and uh, Ghani, Ashraf Ghani ran off with $170 million. So they're trying, they're, they've moved into that like financial warfare, economic strangulation kind of situation. But it is going to be a challenge for them geographically and politically to pull that off given all the other people they're sanctioning as well. Exactly. Well, given a few things, then, Kawa, I think a lot of time what we're reading online and you hear from the spectrum of the leftists, the liberals, to the conservatives. So how bad were the Taliban? The Taliban were bad. So there's a lot of, I, I see it in terms of the continuity between the Mujahideen and the Taliban. So okay. whatever, whoever, the, the 92 to 2001 period mm -hmm. was hell on earth you know, for yeah. Afghans. And and really, the thing is, the 20, 2001 to 2021 period was also hell on earth because those same Mujahideen were put back into power, right? So after 2001, when the, when the Americans took over, they were running these various operations and they set up this Afghan government. And the mm -hmm. Afghan government that they set up was all the same warlords that they had been sponsoring from the 80s, from the 70s and 80s on. So it's the same names. It's Dostum, it's it's Ismail Khan, it's, it, you know, Salaf, mm. it's all these same guys. And then, you know, they brought this Hamid Karzai uh, guy to rule over them. And then they had their Afghan-American kind of envoy, Zalmay Khalilzad, who still plays a huge role. Well, he may not, may not for much longer, but during the negotiations for the withdrawal of the US, he was also playing a big role. And probably for the negotiating the surrenders of the various Afghan army posts in the face of the Taliban. So, Not to sound conspiratorial, though, but yeah. are we really saying after 20 years of training an Afghan government that they fell this quickly, so easily? Yeah. I do think that, you know, it wasn't in a lot of ways a negotiated handover. There was, you know, it, it's, it's not a conspiracy in the sense it was open. There were, there were negotiations in Doha for more than a year under Trump, yeah. right? So this was an yeah. agreement that Trump, they were always going to leave. Everybody knew they were going to leave. And from the minute they announced like that we're leaving on this date, I think everybody knew <laughs> like <laughs> that what was going to happen. Because the, the thing is like the each of the Mujahideen have some power in their areas, right? Each of the warlords. The thing is they got old. So Dostum got old. Khan got old and, you know, okay, my son's taking over. But, like, your son is never going to be the warlord that you are, right? Of course. Like, that's the reason why monarchies, you know, <laughs> it's the reason why Britain is a, monar is a constitutional monarchy and not a not an absolute monarchy because yeah. their, their system would collapse because inbreeding and everything else, you know, you just can't rely on your children to 
do the same yeah. job as you. And I need, you know, any family business has this problem. Yeah. <laughs> let alone running a country. <laughs> For real. So, so the point is just that, you know, the warlords got old. The Taliban were replenishing themselves and they're under this pressure of this war for 20 years. And so they were just getting better. They were getting better militarily. They were getting better politically, diplomatically. Yep. And the situation was, was developing. And they, so they have, you know, in terms of what they've said, you know, they were committing atrocities against women. They were committing atrocities against one of the ethnicities in Afghanistan, the Hazara, mm. who were kind of like an oppressed caste in a lot of ways, you know, left out of a lot of important jobs and, and so on. The Hazara were were traditionally an oppressed group in Afghanistan and the and the okay. all of the Mujahideen, including the Taliban, committed atrocities against the Hazara. So they've made you know, they've said all the right things. They've said, you know, Hazara, they're Shia. Shia yes. are Muslims. Hazara are oh, Afghans. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's their position now. Their position now is we are all Muslim. We are all Afghan. Women are Afghan. Women have all the rights. They said something like within the limits of Islam, which, you know, <laughs> whatever that means, right? Exactly. Like women are Muslims too. I'm sure women can, will have an interpretation <laughs> of what that means. <laughs> so, you know, whatever, they have that thing. But but the point is, that's not what they were saying in 1996. That's not so at all. Essentially, are you saying the Taliban has had a rebrand? I think so, yeah. I, they may okay. have had like a re, more than a rebrand. They may have had like a whole reboot. I don't know. I mean, we'll have to see what they actually do. But as but what they're saying is very different from what they were saying. So you know, if my maximalist kind of hope, like it is what it is, right? They're in charge. Like there's yeah. no there's no amount of like hoping or wishing that they're not in charge that one can do. But like mm-hmm. my hope is that they kind of return to that nationalist program of you know different periods of afghan history whether it was this you know from 1933 to 1979 no to 1992 really you know like i would say all of those governments were nationalist in some way even though they fought each other and killed each other at various junctures or there was a you know there's a nationalist that all afghans agree on a king amanullah from 1919 to 1929 he fought a war with the british and won but then he was kind of re he was like regime changed in 1929. So anyway, my point is there is a chance that that's what's going to happen. And then whatever reforms that Afghans need to extract, they'll be able to extract. They'll be able to to hold the you know the Taliban accountable. The keyword extract here and and on this podcast we often mention imperialism. Yeah. What are the west's imperialist kind of gains here in 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 Afghanistan? What is it to be gained for them? Well, in terms of imperialist accumulation. Yeah, I mean it's it, you know there are uh, my my understanding of imperialism is always that there's no irrelevant regions, there's okay. no backwaters, there's no mm-hmm. unimportant places geopolitically. So there, the U.S. empire is interested in everything, in every square <laughs> inch of anything. Anything you have, they'll take. Yep. And the poorer you are, the more relatively they'll take from you. So yep. as far as Afghanistan goes, it's incredibly, you know, having, a, having that military base in the region was huge, right? Like if you, yep. you know, the way that these geopolitics wonks think, right? Like this Brzezinski, the famous Zbigniew Brzezinski who said, you know, we're going to hand, he famously said, we're going to hand Russia their Vietnam or whatever. Okay. He, what I don't know what his title was. He's a, the American architect of the Afghan war, basically from the seventies and the eighties. Mm-hmm. So he, 
he has this whole obsession with geopolitics and his whole their whole thing is like whoever controls the A- Eurasian continent controls the world. So we have to okay. control the Eurasian continent. So they have this whole thing where it's like we have to keep Russia and China from joining up. We have to keep them from joining up with Europe. We have to keep Western Europe on our side, etc. So, you know, you can go crazy, honestly, with these geopolitical schemes. Yeah. And same with resources. It's like, oh, they need oil from here. They need lithium from there. They need water from here. You know, you can always do this kind of stuff. But my thing is like, they, these are, that's how they think. Uh, for our purposes as like anti-imperialists, yeah. you just have to not fall into the trap of like, Oh, Afghanistan's such a backwater. Why are they there? Haiti's such a backwater. Congo's such a backwater. Mm. It's like they like you to believe that it's like unimportant to them and they're just there to out of the goodness of their hearts. But in fact, like I said, there's no part of the world that's irrelevant. And like Afghanistan's location right in the center of Asia, at the crossroads of all kinds of potential connections between Asian potential powers. For that to be a, a complete U.S. military base that's occupied by U.S. troops from which yeah. they can launch all kinds of nasty airstrikes from where they have a CIA base from which they can control a huge opium reserve that they can then trade and fund their other covert operations. I mean, yeah. that's these are all very important things to the Americans and they lost them all. So it, it's that's why I don't believe, you know, there's a maximalist kind of conspiracy theory that says, you know, this is all just the this is all orchestrated by the US. Yeah. I don't believe that at all. I do not believe that the US would voluntarily give up their air bases, you know, their ability to influence events militarily in the region. They're they're a place to have their spy equipment, you know, a place yeah. to have their to run their agents and 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 so on. Like I don't think they'll I don't think they would ever do that. So now there, there's going to be like a period of punishment. They're going to try to punish. They're going to try to isolate. They're going to try to demonize. And, you know, like I said, like the Taliban furnished plenty of material from 96 to 2001 that can success, you know, they can help with the demonization. We'll have to see what they do now. But you know, that's what they're going to be into now. They're going to try to set up a situation where they can get back there, where they can, oh, okay. where they can control so, events. Okay, again. so you sincerely be- believe then as well then that, they, that the US sincerely believed by propping up that government that's sympathetic to their interest, it would hold. So you don't think they yeah. exist? Oh, wow, okay. I, yeah, I think, I think that was what they wanted. Like, I don't, I don't think it was entirely, yeah, I don't think this whole, the, tal- the way the thing happened with the Taliban in 2021 was, was what the U- Americans wanted. No, I don't yeah. think that. So I think, yeah, I think if, I think what they wanted would have been like, uh, like a South Korea kind of situation. So it's like a, a state that is, you know, under their thumb that does whatever they ask and that hosts some substantial military assets of theirs that they can ramp up and down as they please or Colombia, right? Or like they have these, they have these kind of all weather bases, base areas in different parts of the world. Thank you so much. Now that was a fascinating overview and took us right through it. But finally, I do need to ask, and as anti-imperialists and proudly, what should our 
analysis be or our take should be moving forward is just i mean the thing is i mean we always know people on the left never can agree on anything <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see you see so many different takes and i think and, and uh, people have been calling me out on this but i'm gonna say it proudly i found that americans particularly on the left are suck at imperialism yeah <laughs> and i'm gonna say it quite yeah, proudly gotta got agree with you there <laughs> they suck at imperialism takes but then what would you think what does our analysis be then so I'm still I'm still working it out, but I I have to go with Malalai Joya. She was a parliamentarian for a little bit. Okay. She there was an interview actually in one of your newspapers, the UK Independent, mm-hmm. an interviewer named Andrew Buncombe. I don't know, but Buncombe interviewed Malalai Joya. She's like a lifelong you know left active left wing kind of activist. She was like I said, she was a parliamentarian. She was kicked out for you know disrespectful <laughs> behavior oh, okay. towards the Mujahideen. Anyway, she had this interview and she was like, look, you know, there are misogynist forces in our society. There are negative, there are a lot of negative forces in our society, but there is no possibility of peace in our country while the Americans are occupying our country. So I like, I'll take it from her. Like, there's no way, there's, there's no angle of US occupation. There's no angle of imperial occupation by the British or the Americans or whatever that has not been done. They've occupied, they've destroyed, they've, you know, had proxies, they've installed governments, they've had overthrown governments, and, you know, none of this has benefited Afghanistan. So, you know, if it's really going to be, if there's going to be a national reconciliation process, which Vijay Prashad, I think he's been a guest yep. on your show. He he mentioned that a couple of days ago, before three days ago, which is, or six days ago now, which is before the Taliban actually took yep. over. He was citing daughter of Dr. Najibullah, the last nationalist president of Afghanistan. So he, you know, if there's going to be a national reconciliation process, it has to be by Afghans, you know, it has to be by Afghans. And Afghanistan's allies now, you know, Pakistan, Russia, China, easily demonized in the West, like always, always available for demonization. But they, they do, they are much more respectful of sovereignty of their, you know, fellow countries than Western, than Canada or the US or, or the UK is. So, you know, we have to start from from sovereignty, like dictatorships or occupations. I mean, occupations are much worse for countries in every way than than dictators than even local dictatorships are. So there's no like, there's no. I don't want to hear anything about abandoning Afghanistan or abandoning yeah. Afghans <laughs> to their fate. Like, none of those are worth anything. So that that's that's where I would start. And then from there, you know, there'll there's gonna be like I said, there's gonna be lots of things that the imperialists do to try to starve Afghans, you know, steal their money. They've already stolen their bank reserves. There's going to be sanctions. So, you know, anti-imperialists have to have an anti-sanctions movement. You know, there's sanctions against Iran, Venezuela, Cuba. These are very destructive form of warfare. And we haven't quite figured out that it's basically the same as warfare. And if you want an anti-war movement, you have to have an anti-sanctions movement. So those are my thoughts so far. Thank you so much, Professor Justin. This has been a, an insightful conversation. I hope everyone, please check out Professor Justin on social media. I'll post his social in the description of this episode. You're listening to the Malcolm Effect of Momodou. Please like, comment, subscribe, and follow me on socials. Until next time, take care.